Uh, the excitement to be with you is sure sweet. A couple of thank yous are in order. One, thank you for our elder team, to our elder teams, for, for sacrificially caring for our church, for leading us so well, and for providing for me this uh, season of rest. It is a joy to be known um, that I'm... Yes, we can give them a hand this morning. It is a joy to serve with these men and to know that they are caring well for the needs of our congregation. Special thank you to those who serve the church through this ministry of preaching and teaching. It is a wonderful joy, but the battle of wrestling with the text and have it wrestle with you in that week leading up is quite a challenge. So thank you, Ken, for teaching us about Jacob wrestling with God and for Simon extolling the glory and the beauty of God's word and for Chad with that opening volley in the Gospel of Mark and for Mike tackling the baptism of Jesus. And what a joy it is also to know that the congregation is well served with faithful teachers, that God has raised us up to serve together uh, here in this place. A special thank you to our staff for not missing a beat, which is not really surprising. You ever see that old Andy Griffith episode where Aunt B goes home and she comes back and Andy and, and Opie have cleaned up the whole house and she feels like all depressed because she wasn't needed, right? Uh, pretty sure this place runs way better without me than with me, but it, the staff did an amazing job and uh, continues to make sure that we are ministering well to our family. It has been a priority of mine since day one to... Uh, to work hard to establish solid teams to share ministry because I've been blessed by leaders who have shared ministry with me and I know that that's the future of the church. And it, so I've, I've worked hard to establish those teams because I believe that the church's needs can be better met by a multitude of hands than by one set. And it is a joy to know, church family, that God has raised up an army of people here, servants and leaders, to care for our congregations and I am indebted to them. We as a church are indebted to them. Before I run headlong into a sermon today, I really wanted to share with you what the Lord has been teaching me and what I've been learning and growing in over the last month as I have been released from all real responsibilities here at our church. And that was a, that was a bit of a challenge. I am somebody who has an inflated sense of responsibility, which is a very diplomatic way of saying I'm a control freak. Um, and it sounds way better, doesn't it? It sounds noble. I have an inflated sense of responsibility. Um, I have, so I was released from all responsibilities, and I found myself not knowing what day it was and not knowing what I was supposed to do. And uh, had, had to, my friend Colby is a pastor in Northern Virginia, and he just said, Man, yeah, you have to, had to learn just to be and not to do anything for the Lord. And it was challenging, but I, there were some big picture goals that I've been trying to hit during that time away. I wanted to connect with God, I wanted to connect with my family, I wanted to connect with my own soul. And I wanted to share with you a little bit of what I've been doing. I camped on the shores of an Adirondack lake with my boys. We caught a big fish. Big fish. It was great. I didn't catch it. Noah caught it, but he was happy, right? I climbed a mountain in a rainstorm with Avery. We couldn't see anything at the top because it was like an absolute deluge, but we did that. We, I spent a few days like an old man just walking around my house, mumbling about all the things that needed to be fixed and then working on some of them. Some of you know what that feels like. I have connected with a lot of old friends in ministry, and I've sought their counsel. I've read a lot. I've read some really, really good books. I've revisited some of my favorites and picked up some new ones. I've studied my Bible. I've dedicated a significant amount of time to praying, not, not necessarily asking for big things from God, but just seeking time with God just being his child and not necessarily a representative for him. 
and uh, allowing him to minister to me. We as a family have visited a few other churches in the area, and we have been blessed to be able to connect with other congregations and just to see what the Lord is doing around the region. I want to bring up a couple good points. There is nothing, nothing as good as the feeling of coming home to church. And also, everywhere in the Capital District, nobody shows up on time. So I say that as a backhanded way of saying, get here on time. But, but also of saying, every place we were at, people didn't start showing up till 10 to 15 minutes after the service had started. So some of you don't realize, there's a whole portion of the service that starts at 10 o'clock, and it's really good, and we would love to have you. But the Lord is doing some really good things in the different churches around the region. I have had more cups of coffee than I can count, and I've met with God, and he was good. He's good. And I want to share with you a bit of some of what the Lord is teaching and impressing on my heart during those times. I'm, I'm firmly convinced that what he's doing in and through me will be a benefit to you. I feel like that's why God calls pastors and leaders and teachers, so that the work that he does in them will um, be able to be shared. I've been struck over these last four weeks with the beauty and the glory of the church. That we, we not, not the buildings, not, not all the fancy accompaniments, no, 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 the, the people, right? The objects, the chosen, that's what Paul says, the chosen objects of God's mercy. That we at one time were objects of his wrath. That judgment and condemnation were rightly coming towards us because of our, our rebellion against him. And yet God in his mercy has chosen to cover that over. And give us his grace and righteousness that he has lavished on us all the riches of grace in the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And we are his people. His people. He chose us. We are the bride and the body of Christ. There is an imputed glory in all of that. I tell my kids all the time, I'm stuck with you, but I chose your mom. I picked her, God gave me you, but I actually went out of my way and chose that one. We are the chosen bride of Jesus. He picked us. Not because we had so much to offer him, but because through him he could do so much in us and for us. We are the family of God. He fitly joins us together. We are united, not only here, but with Christians all around the world through our common faith in Jesus, sealed together with, with, with the faith in the sealing of the same Holy Spirit, focused together on the same glorious goals to know God and to enjoy Him forever. We, we're the church. I want, I want you to know something. I visited a few other churches. Some of y'all, people out there, you... You are attending church as a hobby. Church is a really bad hobby. There are way better things you could do for hobbies. But church is a beautiful family reunion. It is a wonderful family gathering, a wonderful feast of God's people. We are the light of the world. Think about that. That's what Jesus said to his followers. You're the light of the world. You are the hope that the world has and needs. You, a city set on a hill can't be hidden. 
right? As the presence, the consuming fire that we just heard about, as the presence of God burns in us, it shines for the world to see. Because his testimony over us cannot be hidden. And the banner of his unfailing love for us cannot be hidden in this world. There's just something beautiful and glorious and mysterious and wonderful that we get to be part of this thing. And some of us, like me, have grown up in churches forever and we needed to be reminded once again of how the beauty and the glory of the gospel interrupted my parents' lives. They were first-generation Christians and they came out of darkness into light because the gospel arrested their hearts. And in that one act, God in his mercy changed the trajectory of my family history. I am not here because God looked at me and saw a righteous moral person who he needed in his team. But I'm here because I was so lost and desperate and hopeless that I needed him. That's why we're all here. There's a glory in that. And then there's a beauty in just the assembly of those people who get together knowing that. Now, like I said, if you're coming here for a hobby or if you're coming here for a social event, my goodness, you are missing about 95% of what this is really about. But if you come with that heartbeat, that I was lost and now I'm found, and God has opened my blind eyes and made me see the beauty of who he is and has welcomed me into his family and seated me at a table with these brothers and sisters, now we've got some work to do together when we come. And there's a beauty there to see the Spirit's ministry through the members of the church. God moves in you and he moves through you to build up and to edify the other members of the church. Ministry is not a spectator sport. And it is not for the professional clergy. And it's not for people who have positions of authority and leadership in the church. Ministry is for Christians. Empowered by the Spirit of God, fitly joined together to serve the body and to advance the kingdom. And as we gather together, there's a beauty in the assembly as this gathering is a testimony to the power and the effect of Jesus that we are proclaiming together with our gospel partnership that I too was lost. I was weary and brokenhearted. I was helpless and hopeless and without God in this world. But Jesus found me. He chased me down and he purchased me. He saw me in a helpless mess and inserted himself into the fray laying his life down that I might go free. And my presence here with you and our partnership together as brothers and sisters is one way that I bear witness and share the testimony that Jesus saved me and changed me. This gathering is a regular reminder that our greatest joy in this life is not found in pursuing our own will, but in yielding our will to the authority of God empowered by the Spirit through the Scriptures. And the gathering of God's people in places where it's still happening, by the way, the gathering of God's people to sit quietly under the preaching and teaching of the Word is a statement that our heart's greatest joys in this life will be found in yielding to the authority and the will of God in our lives. The gathering of God's people is a reminder that the work of the church is not finished with the final amen. This is not the work of the church. 
The work of the church is the lost and the hurting and the hopeless out there that need to hear. This is a launch pad. This is a training ground. This is a family gathering where we remind ourselves of who God is and what he's called us to do. And we encourage each other to step out in faith and be the hands and feet of Jesus. To be his ambassadors, his spokesmen, his spokeswomen. As we help our friends and our loved ones and our children and our neighbors and our enemies and our co-workers and everybody alike find in Christ what we have found. The forgiveness of sin, a union with God, a treasure greater than anything this world can offer us, hope in the darkest seasons of our lives, and a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The gathering of God's people is a place of safety and refuge for the hurting, for the lonely, for the sick. It's a place of hope for the discouraged and the downcast. And if you're here today and that fits you, I pray that you sense the Spirit of God communicating to you right where you are that this is a place of healing and help and rescue. And because God inhabits the praises of his people, and because the Spirit has promised to accompany the power and empower the ministry of the Word, because God is with us in this place and indwells us in this place, because the gathering itself is a proclamation of the power of God to change our lives, This is an amazing opportunity to invite your friends to experience. Are we inviting people to come and see what God is doing? Are we greeting those who wander in with that glazed look in their eyes trying to find a place to sit? Are we grabbing hold of the opportunities in front of us? I've been wrestling with this concept of the assembly of the church. I've been wrestling with another concept, the sufficiency of Jesus. It simply means he's enough. He's actually more than enough. He satisfies my heart and then some, overflowing. He's not lacking in any way. His his presence, his gifts, his offerings to us, they don't leave us wanting anything. When compared to the treasures of this world, the treasure of Jesus won't fail us. It won't leave us hungry for more. Out of our our bodies will flow streams of living water. We'll never thirst again. He is sufficient for us. And his leadership, not only in his person, but in his leadership in our lives, he is sufficient for us. And here's what that means. That means that I can trust him. And I can embrace whatever today brings my way. Because I am confident that the one who presides over the universe can handle the affairs of my day. As challenging and as difficult as they might be. The sufficiency of Jesus means that I don't have to be him. You might chuckle. You're like, oh, of course, Matt, you don't. No, no, you need to preach that to yourself because I've needed to preach it to myself. I don't have to be him. I don't have to control things that only he can control. I don't have to influence things that only he can influence. I don't have to carry in my own body the weight of responsibility for things that only he can do. Mom and dad, you can't make your children change. You can't make your spouse love Jesus. You can't make your heart beat again with love for God. You can do your part. But he has to do those things. He's a better savior than you and I can be. He's sufficient. I was struck over this last month about the, uh, 
the wonderful privilege it is to be a pastor. And more specifically, to be your pastor. The blessing and the burden of teaching you the Bible week after week is such a rich experience for me. It's, it's challenging. I'm not going to lie. Some passages, like we went through Daniel and I, it almost killed me. My goodness. That was wild. But, but the privilege, please, please hear me, I, I counted a privilege that my work is to regularly insert myself into the scriptures and study what God has spoken to his church. It, there is a refining process and a maturing process and a sin-disclosing, exposing process that goes on week after week after week. And the blessing of standing here with my colleagues and sharing with you what God has spoken in his word is such a joy in my life. The blessing of spending time with you, of exploring how to apply those, those truths that we've learned to the individual situations in our lives, that is a, quite a fun experience. A challenge, but a fun experience. The blessing of serving the Lord together with you, of watching you discover gifts and passions, of watching God use you, seeing the lights come on in your eyes the way that they did in mine when I was a young person. The blessing of leading this congregation with my fellow elders and with an amazing staff team. It is a privilege to be a pastor. It is a double privilege to be yours. There is a joy of growing in grace with you. I'm going to wax old here for a second, right? But when we started this journey together, I was 32 years and one day old. Thank you. Why are we laughing? You think I have a baby face now. I saw a picture of myself the other day. I looked like I was 12. What in the world were we thinking? Being a young pastor of an established church is kind of like being a character on a Disney show. Right? You have to grow up with a whole lot of eyes watching. And all of your missteps are public. And all of, your, uh, all of your insecurities. We don't have the privilege of just hiding that within a small setting. It's just on display for everybody. And it grieves my heart to know how my immaturities and my inexperience, my weaknesses and failures have hurt our church over the years. It does. But it gives me such great hope to see what the Lord has done through that in me and in our congregation and in our team of elders. It has been a challenging and bumpy road at some times. But I want you to know that walking it with you has been a great delight and a joy in my heart and has brought more good fruit in me than anything I ever could have imagined. And I have enjoyed growing old with you. <laughs> I feel old. It gives me hope for the future. So some of you are like, wait a minute, you still got some immaturities and rough edges to grind off. I go, good news, we've got a couple more decades to work on that, right? But the joy of seeing you grow in your faith, of watching as God shows you new things in the scripture, 
as, as you gain ground in your ongoing battle with remaining sin, as you, as I, I can see your heart for the Lord growing, I watch as you step out with faith and meet God in the valley of the unknown. Paul talks about how he thinks of the church as a parent, how he longs for them with the anguish of a mother in childbirth, that Christ would be formed in them. And I can give testimony to that longing, to that desire that, that you would see in Christ what God has shown me. That you would love him more and you'd love the things of this world less. And then I get to watch it happen in your lives. The joy of seeing God ministering in you and through you and to you. This, this is probably the most wonderful part of being a pastor. The front row seat that I get to have to the miracles of God in your life. The privilege it is to hear your stories where other people might not. Based on the nature of what I do, I have, within my, my knowledge, I have very sensitive information that I, that I receive. And then I watch as we pray together and labor in the word together and counsel together and cry together and trust God together, I watch him move. And I've seen chains of sin and rebellion broken by God's grace. I've watched as you have fought for joy in the midst of seasons of depression and breakdown and heartache and come through the other side. I have seen your faith and courage on display through health battles. As you have looked and some of you today continue to look into the eyes of sickness and disease and you believe God for healing and trust him for comfort if it doesn't come. I have seen you refuse to yield to despair because God is your hope. I have watched marriages that were hanging on by a thread being rebuilt on a new foundation. I have watched as you have triumphed in Christ over all the things that our enemy wanted to use for your destruction. He was actively trying not to stop the entire church as a corporate body. He's going after individuals. And he was coming for you to steal, to kill, and destroy. And rather than yield to him, you leaned into the abundant life that Jesus provides. And today you are a beautiful trophy of God's grace. Because, hear me out, because fear and doubt and apathy and sickness and addiction, and abuse, and adultery, and divorce, and depression, and grief, and prodigal children, and your guilt, and your shame, and your insecurity, and your season of rebellious and foolish wandering, none of it had the power to hold you. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. And even though the enemy tried with all of his might to work you into destruction, in you has dwelt the all-surpassing glory and power of Jesus. And it is hard to know your stories, to see God working in you, and not be overwhelmed by the power and the goodness of God. And my friends, it is impossible for me, impossible for me to have this front row seat and not be overwhelmed with gratitude 
that God in his wisdom and mercy has chosen this season to give this gift to me. And I think of the Apostle Paul's reflections on being an apostle. And he says, who, who is sufficient for such things? The answer is clear, no one. No one. But in Christ we are sufficient. And in him all things are possible. I have more that I'm thinking about too. I just haven't organized it yet. And I'm supposed to preach something today, I guess. I don't know. Here we go. Let's see if I can do that. Mark chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. I have a two. They're they're really hemming me in here. I have a two-verse passage today. Let's see if I can get through that in an hour. Two-verse passage. Mark chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Jesus comes up out of the water. He is baptized by John. It's the coronation of the king. He is on the scene and he is established for ministry. Verse 12 and 13 of Mark chapter 1 reads this way. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Wow. If we continue at this pace, we're going to finish Mark when my youngest Evie graduates high school in 12 years. At some point, we're going to have to pick up the pace. If you've read Mark in any number of times, you'll notice he moves very quickly. He would be really frustrated with the way we're doing this, I think. He constantly, immediately, immediately, he's moving right and left to the next thing to show us, what, show us Jesus in all of his glory. But we're going to slow down for today. We'll pick it up at some point, I promise. The temptation of Jesus, he gives us two verses. That's all we get. And they're not even real complete verses. In fact, he doesn't even tell us what happened. Without the other Gospels, we're wondering, well, did Jesus win? Did, he was tempted. Did he give in? Like, he doesn't even tell us the outcome, right? Thankfully, mercifully, we have the other Gospel writers to balance this in. This is mentioned in Matthew and in Luke, and it's much more drawn out there. But what we need to see is, is the temptation of Jesus here. A couple observations. Immediately, the Spirit drove him. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. The enemy didn't ambush him. He wasn't hiding in wait. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness for this purpose. This battle, this showdown between the King of Heaven, the Son of God, and the Prince of the Power of the Air, the enemy, was supposed to happen just like this. The Spirit drove him. And I wish I could go on more for this. We'll get to this maybe next week, but one of the things Mark is trying to show is the absolute authority of Jesus. And if this new king is coming, and this new kingdom comes with power, then the power of the new kingdom is going to have to, at some point, be squared off against the power of this world. So he waits 11 verses to get us into that power struggle. Immediately, he heads into the wilderness He's there in the wilderness for 40 days. He's tempted by Satan and angels were ministered or angels ministered to him. And in the Gospels of Matthew and in Luke, we get a little more of a picture here. We see that he was 40 days without food, fasting. And then at the end of the 40 days, the enemy comes when he's completely exhausted and depleted. If I go like six hours without eating a snack, I get hangry, right? Like a diva, like give me my food, right? 40 days in the wilderness with no food, and then the enemy comes, and he tempts him. Remember, he says, well, if you're the son of God, why don't you make the stones bread? You see what he's, bread, he's hungry, hasn't eaten for 40 days. Well, Jesus, you know, you do have the power to make the stones bread. Why don't you just do that? Tempting him. 
he withstands. And then, in the, and then he takes him to the, the pinnacle of the temple and he says, look, prove you're the son. Throw yourself off. You, the, the Bible says the angels will care for you. Go ahead, do it. Throw yourself down. No, he won't do it. Then he takes him to the highest mountain and he looks out over all the kingdoms of the earth and he says, if you would bow down and worship me, Jesus, I will give you rule, or, uh, I'll give you rule over all the kingdoms of the world. I was struck by the timing of this temptation. That the force and the timing of Satan's work here is no joke and it's not an accident. He came after Jesus had even gotten started. He's trying to destroy this thing before it actually can get established. All you children of the 80s will remember the Terminator going back trying to kill John Connor before he ever got to, to, to rule and lead the humans in revolt again. Right. So it's, it's basically, it's the Terminator is a gospel story. And I guess you didn't know that until today. <laughs> All right. He's working to cut off the victory of Christ before it actually happens. My goodness, isn't that the way he works? Seeking to kill off all the firstborn Hebrew children before the deliverer could come. Seeking to kill the newborn baby so the king of the Jews wouldn't arrive. Seeking to destroy God's chosen people through famine. But God always has a way. He comes to try to cut it off before it even gets started. And I'm reminded of the, the, the parable of the sower, where the seed is snatched away by the birds before it even has a chance to take root. And then I'm reminded of my own heart and how often God moves in my heart to show me what I'm supposed to do, speaks to me, comforts me, answers a prayer, and before I even get started, I feel like I'm in a battle. How many good gifts have we missed because the enemy has sought to steal them away in the early moments? What we see is a defeated enemy frantically trying to alter the course. He knows his end. And he's doing everything he can to stop it. We also see the nature of temptation. I just want to think for a moment this morning about what's actually going on here. Well, we could say rather quickly, Matt, it's pretty easy. Satan tempted Jesus. Yeah, gotcha. But on a big picture, what is, what is the nature of what's happening here? Jesus is already the eternal son of God. He just left heaven. In the Gospels, he identifies himself as one with the Father, that the two of them are one. He has charge over all the angels. He already knows what it is to be in power. Satan is offering him a lesser treasure. It might be valuable to you or I, but compared to what he's already possessed, it's not that special. Just think about that for a moment. He comes along to Jesus, who is the eternal son of God, the creator, redeemer, sustainer of life. The prince of righteousness, right? The one who has authority over the wind and the waves and the demons and sickness and the, the kingdoms of this world already and says, listen, if you'll worship me, I'll give this to you. Makes you wonder why Jesus didn't look at what, And what do I need that for? I've already got all that and more. And then I thought about the nature of temptation and how, and how it hasn't changed. That every day, our enemy comes to you and me and he offers to satisfy lesser desires 
and give us lesser treasures in hopes of fulfilling our heart's needs and desires. And the foolish thing is, like a dog returning, returning to its vomit, we just keep going back for it. The nature of temptation hasn't changed. You have already be, been given in Christ absolutely everything you need. And the enemy comes and he offers you a cheap substitute. Like some, uh, like some New York City Oakley sunglasses, right? That you purchased out of somebody's overcoat. You're already wearing your Ray-Bans that you paid $300 for. You got a financing plan and an insurance plan on that thing. You're good. And you're really going to trade that for a cheap knockoff? So how do we see this play out? We're tempted every day to give in to anger and rage. Because we can't control everything, but I can at least control that. And yet Christ is already in control of everything. And in him we can have perfect peace. We're tempted to choose the lesser treasure of fear and despair, even though we know that obedience to a perfectly sovereign God is our calling, not timidity and fear. We're tempted to comfort ourselves on a daily basis with alcohol, with substances, with pornography in its many forms, when Christ has already pledged to meet our deepest desires. Already pledged to be that rock of refuge. We're tempted to choose the lesser treasure of gossip and slander when the greater treasure of humility and love is calling for our allegiance. We're tempted to choose the illicit sexual encounter instead of resting in the Lord to be good enough to minister to our needs. We're tempted to cut corners on financial reports, earning a few more dollars, but forfeiting our souls in the process when the greater treasure of godly stewardship and all the blessings that are waiting for us hang in the balance. We know this feeling, right? We are not removed from temptation. The temptation of Jesus is very similar to the way the enemy attempts us. Trade in this good gift that God gave you for a crappy gift that you got on the corner of some inner city street. Okay. Now we all nod and go, yeah, that's true, we get it, right? My goodness, if we would embrace that truth in the throes of temptation, can you imagine what God might do in our hearts? As we feel overwhelmed with that burden to lean into sin and rebellion and foolishness and instead stand our ground and acknowledge, God, I'm being tempted with this lesser treasure, but I know that you're the greater treasure. So God, strengthen me and my heart and grow my affections to love you more than this thing that is being offered to me. a defeated enemy selling us a cheap substitute just like he did for Jesus and it didn't work for him and by God's grace it doesn't have to work for us either. God is faithful and he has provided a way out. You will not be faced with any temptation except that which is common to man and he will provide a way out for you. Don't take the bait. Stand, stand firm and faithful. And we see the end of temptation as well. We find that Jesus won't yield. He won't give in. He was firm and faithful. And I was reminded while studying and preparing and walking and praying this week that it was precisely Jesus' perfect obedience. It was his resistance to temptation that has given us our righteous standing. 
His death frees us from the debt that we owed, but his perfect life gives us the righteous account of Christ. It was his willingness to stand in the face of temptation, fulfilling the law in all of its righteous demands that allows us to stand before God accepted. And because of his resistance to temptation, we can stand too. Because the power of sin is already defeated. And our enemy is a defeated enemy. He is frantically trying to do anything he can to disrupt you, to steal, kill, and destroy. But he knows his end. And friends, if you've read the book, you know his end too. Because he has the power to stand. We too, his power lives in us. We too have the power to stand. I think it's appropriate this morning that we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together because it reminds us once again of Jesus' faithfulness in the face of temptation. He prays in the garden, God, if, Father, if, if it's possible, let this cup pass over me, let this cup of wrath, this cup of fulfilling your will. If it's possible for all this pain and destruction to pass over me, then, then, then do it, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done faithfulness in the face of temptation. He's hanging on the cross and they're mocking him saying, wait, haven't you been given charge over the angels? Go ahead, call them. They'll set you free. He has been given charge over the angels. And all he had to do was was offer one word and they would have come. Standing by ready to rescue him. And still he refused to yield to temptation. He refused to trade the lesser treasure of his comfort for the greater treasure of the church's redemption. And when we take the cup and the bread, symbolic of the broken body and blood of Christ, we are reminded that he was faithful to the end, even to the point of suffering, humiliating death on the cross for you and for me. Hallelujah, what a Savior we serve today. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. The worship team's going to come up, and when I say amen and the music starts, you're going to come forward and receive the elements. And as you do so, let's do so with that in mind. We are taking the elements as a result of the faithful obedience of Jesus. And in him, he has empowered us to be faithful for him. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. And we thank you for meeting us here today in the assembly of your church. And we thank you for the way that you stood faithful in temptation. And God, we rejoice knowing what that faithfulness delivered. That your faithfulness purchased our salvation set us free from the law of sin and death, gave us righteousness in Christ. God, we rejoice that your faithfulness is our key to union with you, to reconciliation. Lord, we rejoice that we are the objects of your mercy through faith. And Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper today, I pray that you would help our hearts to be overwhelmed again with the glory of the gospel message. That we were dirtier and darker than we ever could have imagined and your love was sweeter and more beautiful than we ever could have dreamed. And Lord, as we 
Remember your broken body and your shed blood for us. I pray that our hearts would be moved to repentance, to faith, to good deeds, and to love. In Jesus' name, amen. This time I'll invite you to come and receive the elements. Return to your seats and we'll take them together.
Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul talks about this ordinance of the Lord's Supper that we're observing. He says to the Corinthian church, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He goes on to say, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Stand with me and we'll pray together. And we'll have the band lead us in one more song. Lord, thank you for the gift it is to know and understand the gospel. Thank you for the gift it is to be the object of your mercy. When once we were enemies and rebels and slaves to sin, by mercy now we are sons and daughters adopted into the family of God, servants, joint heirs with Jesus. Thank you for the work that you've done in our hearts and in our lives. Thank you for the testimony that the local church is that the power of the gospel is real, that our lives are new and different, that we have been made new and different through faith in Christ. Empower our mission, God, as a congregation, that our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones, that our family members, that our coworkers, our teammates and classmates, that they would know and see that the banner over us is the love of Jesus. Burn within us that consuming fire that we might take our place as that city on a hill, that the light of the world. Lord, strengthen us to stand in the face of temptation. We've rejoiced today in all that you've done, but God, you're not finished yet. And we know you're capable to do so much more. To that end, we labor. To that end, we pray. To that end, we trust in Jesus' name.